I've been thinking about climate change and what might be called spiritual intelligence, led by Rowan Williams's comments, amongst other things, in the Extinction Rebellion handbook, which didn't have much about the spiritual nature of the climate crisis, apart from Rowan Williams's short chapter, where he lamented the mindset that atomized, that reduced everything to a mechanism, and so easily therefore tips into an economy of exploitation and carelessness which he felt lies behind the climate crisis. So wondering how to fill out really what were no more than a few notes from him. And here are five possible principles that might help develop a spiritual awareness around the climate crisis and help cultivate a consciousness which of course is old as well as needing to be new that might help us move beyond this disastrous mindset that has so gripped modern civilization of mechanism of carelessness of fragmentation of exploitation and the first principle that i've been wondering about has to do with the tragic but how it's long been noticed that comedy embraces and transcends tragedy. I think we're going to need much that enables us to transcend experiences which will range from sadness to desperation, from worry to gripping fear from a vague sense of the future disappearing to a keen sense of hopelessness. And this is not new, in fact, of course. And one touch point in Western culture for seeing how there's more than just the tragic goes back to Plato's Symposium, where right at the end, Socrates says the great thing to be able to do would be able to write a comedy that embraced tragedy. And by comedy, he meant just that there's an end which delights. There's an end which holds fast to the good. There's an end where beauty doesn't die, but in its complexity and nuance embraces what's gone wrong. And in many ways, as a literary aim, writing a comedy that embraces a tragedy has been taken up by the great writers. Shakespeare clearly comes to mind where his comedies are often precipitated after tragic circumstances and all's well that ends well. I think that an important principle to cultivate that links to spiritual intelligence, therefore, is going to be the idea that there is the good that will not let us go.
the good that will not let that will not let us go. I'm riffing here a bit from the remark made by Francis Spufford in his book Apologetic, where he coins a phrase, the human propensity to fuck things up, formerly known as sin. And that leads him to turn to the version of Christianity that sees Christianity almost as a rescue from disaster. I think we need something a bit more subtle than that. I think that the risk of that is it disempowers, it disengages from life and so with the best of intentions actually compounds the present problem and at the very least leaves too many over open to exploitation. But there's a deeper strand within Christianity and other wisdom traditions, other parts of the perennial philosophy, which knows that there is a good that will not let us go. I think Iris Murdoch, for example, was onto this in her book, The Sovereignty of Good. It's why she calls the good sovereign. It stands ever before, within and over us, and even can be experienced as calling us. And the link with Plato is instructive too, because in the symposium, love is discussed. And I think it's love that enables us to see the good that will not let us go. It's the kind of love that is able to hold life close, to keep looking in spite of disaster and difficulty, to keep bringing light to dark times. And therefore it overcomes fear and anxiety and hatred, animosity, conflict, dispute. By cultivating the gaze that can see the good even in the midst of enmity, passion that can tear people apart, has at its core the longing for something that can be perverse, can be twisted, of course. But nonetheless, behind it is the good that will not let us go, fostered by the love that can hold close. And so practicing that and knowing how comedy, good, delight, transcends and is found within the midst of tragedy is going to be a key capacity, I think, to develop this new consciousness beyond the consciousness of fragmentation and the machine and exploitation that Rowan Williams identified. It leads to a second principle, a second practice, which is that amidst seemingly endless complexity, simplicity can always be found. Now this isn't simplicity meaning anything that's simplistic, rather it's the simplicity that can see through diversity, complexity, confusion towards a principle that can transcend all that difference and so hold it together and provide a lodestar, a kind of orientating principle. The Latin phrase for it would be to be able to see subspecies eternitatis. And it's in the wisdom traditions again, in moments of transcendence, 
um, Scipio's dream comes to mind, which Cicero relates, in which Scipio imagines himself rising above the earth and his small difficulties and confusions are absorbed into the wider picture that's in, absorbed itself into um, the sight of the earth itself as he rises through the heavens. You know, it's the great appeal of the, the shot of the earth from space and the profound impact that that has upon us, even if momentarily when we see it. It's to understand that there's a still centre in the heart of all things. Um, widely recognised this type of simplicity once again. I've been reading recently the Taoist text, the Xuanzi, and at one point Xuanzi makes this remark when he says it, this simple centre, exists beyond the highest point and yet you cannot call it lofty. It exists beneath the limit of the six directions, north, south, east, west, up, down, and yet you cannot call it deep. It was born before heaven and earth. Heaven and earth are in it, you might say, and yet you cannot say it has been there for long. It is earlier than the earliest time, and yet you cannot call it old. These paradoxes are designed to lead us towards that which remains simple, remains at the origin, and so both survives, tolerates complexity as well as enabling us to find a way through it when we know how to be aligned to it through the development of a new consciousness of spiritual intelligence. So simplicity amidst the complexity I think will be important to practicing that. A third principle I think is to learn to think again in terms of the ecology rather than the machine. Williams in his short chapter in the Extinction Rebellion handbook refers to the machine that not just set of technologies, but much more deeply that whole way of life that has so absorbed the modern world. You know, machines have always existed. The steam engine was known in the ancient Greek world, but no one thought to organize the whole of life around the machine. And that requires a new consciousness to happen, which is the modern consciousness, organizing life, striving for greater power, striving for greater perfection in the material world. Francis Bacon often takes the brunt of this analysis, but he does put it well. He's not the only one. But when he describes his yearning for the creation of a machine that, for example, will do away with the flaws of the human mind and so be able to reason perfectly and so reach perfect knowledge and therefore deliver perfect power. That dream of making heaven on earth, you might say, rather than knowing that earth and heaven relate in a different way. Heaven shines through earth rather than being completely identified with earth, you might say. So I think we need to know how that's so 
And this points us to the notion of ecology rather than a machine, because an ecological system is one where there is flaw, there is death, there is decay, there is loss. And yet that is held within a wider sense of the pulse of life itself. And how the living world gives itself to itself and thereby sustains itself, you might say. It's a consciousness of the all, as well as of the parts. Um, the all that's beyond us, not just known by us, um, to avoid exploitation and the fascistic tendency in, in human beings, of course, as well. So that we, in our way of life, don't just serve our own survival, but subvert, serve the survival, the pulse of life, the vitality of the all relearning what that might be about. It's as much about sacrifice as it is about power. Sacrifice not in the sense of degrading, degenerating, um, denigrating oneself needlessly, but the sacrifice which knows that in giving is receiving, in passing on is renewal, and that understands completion over perfection, to use Carl Jung's distinction, that has the, the capacity to see in a, in a way, in this simple way, once more again, that everywhere has its part, that every, every living entity is part of the greater whole. Um, I think there's a, an awareness of this emerging again. I'm thinking of Merlin Sheldrake's recent book, Entangled Life, which certainly in the UK is selling so well now that you wonder whether it's captured a consciousness of our moment and a yearning for something that has been half lost. Because in that book, Merlin talks of participating in what he's studying, the fungi, the subterranean world of um, the mycologist which he studies. And there's something about that participative engagement with what he's studying, a science of ecology, not just the science of power, which I think must be part of its appeal. And so people are reading the book, hoping to awaken that in themselves. So this is the third principle to think in terms of ecology, not the machine, the whole as well as the parts. It leads to a fourth that is embedded in that third principle, which is the idea that life actually is characterised by abundance, by generosity, rather than by scarcity. It is marked by what you might call real wealth, rather than abstract wealth. So this is knowing the value of all things rather than the price of everything, to recall Oscar Wilde's famous remark. Um, it's to understand that life is ultimately not traded in a marketplace which treats everything as scarce so it can be given a price and therefore traded. You know, it's not without its benefits, that way of organising life, but it must be contained within a wider sense of life, I think, which is that ultimately real wealth is abundant, is generous. It's the wealth of love. It's the wealth of beauty. It's the wealth of truth, 
that just gives itself repeatedly. It's an understanding of freedom that knows we can always choose this good, beauty, truth path, not feel the need to exercise our will, which is the dominant notion of freedom in the modern world as well, and so creates competition, creates a sense that freedom itself is somehow scarce. It's an education that's not just about your function in the world, but is about your desire to discover more and more of the world. And there's always more and more to be discovered as well. I think we need this sense of the transcendent that pours this abundant, generous life because we are contradictory creatures. We do want that which feels scarce. We do confuse the desire for more with the capacity to know the all to echo William Blake's remark. And so focusing in on when we experience life as abundant and generous rather than scarce and priced, again, I think will be another important part of the spiritual intelligence that might help us face the climate crisis. And then fifthly, I feel that there's a need for new sacred myths, as well as scientific explanations for things. Um, science promises the technology that delivers control and gain and power, um, as well as solution and the promissory note of resolution of our crises. And there's absolutely no doubt about the fact that technology will be needed and this must develop a pace but alongside it, if it's not to run out of control, as I sense, you know, as people increasingly sense, um, it has possibly done already, is going to be needed new myths that put the technological, put the scientific in a wider context, new sacred myths about our relationship to the cosmos, to creation, to each other, to ourselves, you might say complementing the rationality that people try and turn to with that which is not so much irrational, but that lets us let the world be as well as try to understand so as to use it to our own ends. Schwanzer too puts this in distinctively strong ways when he makes his remark, you can't bear to watch the sufferings of this age and so you go and make trouble for 10,000 ages to come. Are you just naturally a bore? Or don't you have the sense to understand the situation? He even goes so far as to say you take pride in practicing charity and making people happy. The shame of it will follow you all your days, he says. You know, this is the utilitarian principle he's he's he's, he's uh, criticising, which seems so rational to try and bring about the greatest happiness for the greatest number until you reach the point in that cycle which it feels we've reached, where that's leading to mass consumption, a kind of material striving after happiness that can't be delivered, never could, but certainly can't when the resources run out. And so, says Schwanzer, these are the actions, the progress of mediocre people, but what good are these actions of yours? They end in nothing but a boast. 
he is also full of sacred myths and old intuitions that try and counter that rationality gone mad. Um, I think about it too in relation to ancient Athens, um, a wonderful book that's recently been published by Greg Anderson called The Realness of Things. And there he points out that the democracy that was born in ancient Athens and that we take to be the origin of our own democratic ways of life actually was strikingly different. And in many ways, it was an exercise in trying to contain and limit the reach of politics and the reach of economics so that the ancient Athenians could preserve the sense that they related to the cosmos and creation, to the Chthonic gods that they knew themselves to be sprung from through the old rites, the old festivals, the old libations, the old stories. There was a need for a new politics and a new economics, partly with the emergence of the sense of individuality and freedom based upon the person that was born at this time and that we remember in figures like Socrates, the capacity to ask why for yourself, as well as by turning to old traditions. But Anderson makes the case in his book, The Realness of Things Past, that politics was constrained to what we now think of as public life and that the main locus of life actually remained in the household where men and women together worked at that which sustained their own life, that which sustained their relationship to the gods around and about as well. Um, economy too, which of course means the management of the household was strictly that. I think they would have been shocked to think that nowadays we think of this abstract economy, managing abstract wealth that can put abstract prices on everything and so claim to embrace the world. There's a huge pull to extend that in responding to the climate crisis so that everything can be priced, everything can be factored in by these artificial means. But without, of course, knowing how it would play out, I think recalling the consciousness that would limit political life, that would limit economic life, and so allow a space to emerge within ourselves as much as within the world around us that wasn't bound by those kind of interactions and exchanges and rules and bidding, but that was recognized and celebrated and related to through new myths, which would no doubt be old as well, through new practices of feasting and giving and recognizing and letting be. Maybe you see this in some conservation activities that as much try to ring fence and release as manage and control. It's ultimately, I think, about regaining a balance between the human life and the non-human, between the terrestrial and the celestial, which all peoples, apart from our own, have 
organized around. Again, this isn't a quick fix, it's no easy solution, but perhaps spiritual intelligence can help foster a new awareness of such a sense of life, of this kind of possible dynamic. And this last sacred myth, as well as scientific explanation, principle is the fifth of the five that I've been wandering about recently, that we need a way of firstly telling a story of comedy, of delight, that can embrace tragedy and loss. We need to know the good that will not let us go, as well as the human propensity to fuck things up. Secondly, we need the ability to see and align to that which is simple amidst all the complexity, to see subspecies eternitatis, to see the earth from the widest viewpoint of the heavens in order to be able to orientate and find our way through the complexity that undoubtedly exists. Thirdly, we need to recover an awareness and appreciation and so gradually a practice and way of life that focuses on the ecological rather than the machine that understands completion over perfection, that knows how sacrifice is a key part of empowerment, how that which is beyond us as well as within us is important and crucial to understand that the machine fails to recognize. Fourthly, to know life therefore is abundant and generous, not just scarce and needing to be priced, and to know that our freedom ultimately rests on orientating and aligning to that which is good, beautiful and true, not merely exercising our will. The third Earl of Shaftesbury, who I find such an inspiration, Anthony Ashley Cooper talked about awakening to that which beautifies and it will beautify you and the world around. Again, quite how that plays out would be emergent and seen as that consciousness itself developed and established itself within us. But that's the fourth point, abundance and generosity over scarcity, and would no doubt need to be complemented by the fifth element, the quest to revive, remake, rediscover, renew sacred myths that tell us about the relationship between earth and heaven, that tell us about between the relationship between the human and the non-human, that tell us about the inside of the whole world, to use Owen Barfield's wonderful expression, as well as our own inside. Psychology, you might say, needs to become cosmology once again. These things perhaps are invitations as well as needs for now. They help us face the crisis with hope because the crisis, of course, is possibly a turning point and the old things which have been forgotten, the sacred, the abundant, the ecological, the simple and the good might return to us even at this 11th hour.